Today on this episode of PB Roundup Specialist Spotlight. It honestly did come from the myth that we hear a lot that running wears out your knees. And we knew there was evidence out there to suggest it doesn't. So we decided to um, come together and synthesize all of that information. Today, PhD candidate Michaela Kahn from the University of British Columbia and an author of several scientific papers on running biomechanics joins the podcast to discuss this and more in this edition of the PV Roundup Specialist Spotlight. Want to be featured on the podcast? Tell us the story of how you chose your career path to medicine. I've been asking this question to our guests in the Specialist Spotlight series, and folks really seem to enjoy hearing how others got their start. So now it's your turn, and we want to hear from you. Tell us your story in up to four minutes and include your name, degree, specialty, practice setting, and location, and your journey to medicine story. You can submit an audio recording of your story or send it to us in a text format, and we'll read it for you. Email us at editorial at pvroundup.com for the chance to have your story heard on a future episode. I'm your host, Senior VP Medical Director, Dr. Tim Wright, and joining me today on the podcast is Michaela Kahn. She is a PhD candidate in the Motion Analysis and Biofeedback Laboratory and the Department of Physical Therapy at the University of British Columbia. She is also the lead author on a paper recently published in Sports Medicine on the influence of running on lower limb cartilage. Michaela, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So the first question I usually ask our guests, can you describe your research setting uh, or where you work? Yeah, so I'm a PhD student at the University of British Columbia, and I work with my supervisor, uh, Dr. Michael Hunt. Um, And so we do mostly running biomechanics. So we look at the physics of the way we move, and we also do a lot of medical imaging as well. So using magnetic resonance imaging to look right inside the knee joint. Great. And I'm always interested in others' paths to where they got in their career. Can you share your path? <laughs> How far back do you want to go? <laughs> uh, we go, we went back with one physician to getting a little plastic stethoscope in a doctor's bag. Oh. So however far you want to go. <laughs> um, well, for me, my love of biomechanics started from when I was a gymnast. I wanted to understand how the body can rotate and move in the way it does. Um, so in university, I did my undergrad and master's in kinesiology. My master's, I was more in an orthopedic biomechanic role. So looking at uh, the physics of how we get injured and then how we rehabilitate. And then for my PhD, I'm more in clinical biomechanics. Um, so without the sort of surgical focus. Okay. And so I want to brought you here to talk about one of your papers, but I also noticed that in his, listening to some of your research interests, I'm going to start off with the first question is, how did we in medicine give running a bad rap? Oh, that's a good question. Um, it's a little bit confusing, but we think it might have come from some really old studies that um, essentially they took animal models, they explanted cartilage, and they hit it really, really hard over and over again. And they said, wow, look, it, it breaks, it wears away. <laughs> And so then we thought, you know, this wear and tear must happen in humans. But we forgot that the human body is an entire system and does a pretty good job at adapting. And full disclosure, I'm an osteopath. So we do have some of that. You know, the founder of our school of medicine thought that the human body contained a lot of things that could heal itself. So I'm definitely in sync with that. Also, I'm going to age myself that many of us in medicine thought or were trained that the amount of cartilage you had when you were born, or at least when you hit puberty, was all the cartilage you were going to have in the rest of your life. Yeah, we hear that a lot. Like, um, you've only got so many steps you can take and then that's it. Um, And it's, 
it's not true, but I can see where that feeling comes from. Um, cartilage just does take longer to repair. So I wanted to segue into the paper published in Sports Medicine a few months ago about the influence of running on lower limb cartilage. Can you start with, you know, where did the idea for that paper come and how did you get there? It honestly did come from the myth that we hear a lot that running wears out your knees. And we knew there was evidence out there to suggest it doesn't. So we decided to um, come together and synthesize all of that information. So we ended up including 43 studies that had essentially used MRI to assess cartilage before and after a run. And yeah, compiled that and saw what happened. And so a couple of questions I have. First of all, before we get into sort of the clinical implications, because I did have a chance to read the paper, wide range of papers. I mean, um, from people who were running barefoot on treadmills to ultra marathoners. Yes. Can you go into a little bit of what you sort of found when you were initially looking at all the different papers? It's sort of a common thread coming through. I would say, yes, you're totally right in saying there was a huge variety. So we had some people, you know, um, assessing cartilage after a single run, and then other papers looked at cartilage even during a ultra stage marathon. Um, so I think it was running from, oh, I don't want to get this wrong, but like Norway to Italy. So just huge distances. Uh, but that's the, yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's pretty amazing. Um, like few individuals who can do that, but we captured them in this paper. And so I think the general gist is that cartilage can tolerate running well. So we saw that immediate changes to cartilage after running, they generally didn't persist. Um, and even after a training program as well, there didn't seem to be any long-term effects. And when I say effects, we're looking at how the cartilage deforms and then also its biochemical composition. And the other thing that I did notice is that, and I think that we in medicine, in clinical medicine, realize, yes, cartilage is meant to be sort of a shock absorber, but that it's a living shock absorber. And the gist that I got from, you know, not being a scientist that's as deeply rooted in this as you are, is that it does squish and fluid comes out, but after a certain amount of rest, fluid comes back in. You got it. I like to think of cartilage as a sponge. So it is primarily fluid. Um, and it's got little, it's got porous membranes. So yeah, when you are impacting it, such as during running, that fluid does exude, it comes out of the tissue. Um, but where it goes is into that synovial fluid. And in there is all the nutrients. It's so rich in everything you need. And so when you rest and recover, that water, because of fluid dynamics, comes rushing back into the cartilage. And that's essentially how the cartilage gets fed, because it doesn't have a blood supply. That's how it happens. So you need that sort of impact and recovery. Right. And, and again, I said, I have coworkers and friends who are all into running. So they've like prepped me with all these questions. And, and if they're beyond the scope of your paper or your expertise, tell me now. One of the things is what constitutes recovery? So recovery is a really important point. Um, and with this paper, we really tried to capture um, from the effects immediately after running. So that's finishing your run and sticking people in the MRI, like essentially within two minutes. But then all the way up to 24 hours after the run, all the way up to a week, a month. And we did see changes to cartilage in that immediate stage. Um, but 
I mean, even as soon as half an hour, cartilage can come back to baseline. And now we're talking healthy cartilage, just to, that's a distinction. Right. Because that was I, the other point you made in the paper, you and the other authors was, is that we need to look at people who have pre-existing conditions. Because, you know, I've heard, and as someone who did suffer from that, I did run quite a bit in college, uh, played lacrosse. So, but I also injured the cartilage and a couple of ligaments. And then full disclosure, I've had bilateral knee replacements. And always thought, oh, I, all the running screwed up my cartilage. But what I'm seeing in, in your paper and other papers is that it's probably the injury to the ligaments and maybe also the prior injury to the cartilage, not the running. Yeah, you've got it. And we have some pretty compelling evidence. I'm thinking of a review that was published in 2017 by um, Alan Tornjelli. Mm-hmm. And it showed that if you run recreationally, so maybe three to four times a week, um, the prevalence of knee osteoarthritis in that group is actually much less than somebody who ran competitively or didn't run at all. So we think that running might have a protective effect on our cartilage. Well, that's great. And I think the other question that some folks and have asked me is, is there a difference that you were able to glean either in this paper or in your research about the different types of running? So some of these folks had treadmill running. Some of these folks were running on asphalt. You know, it used to be sort of an old axiom that if you ran on grass or softer surfaces or even wood, it was better. Yeah. Thoughts on that? From this paper, we didn't have enough power. We don't have enough studies looking at different surfaces. Mm-hmm. Um, anecdotally, I know it can make a difference. So in my PhD work, I work with master's runners with knee osteoarthritis, and they seem to prefer softer surfaces. We have a lot of trail runners, um, but no evidence for that yet. So run where you enjoy and it makes you feel good. Right. Okay. That's great. And then I think the other thing is, is that distance. And I realized that when I was reading through the different studies that, and and you also said this a few times in the paper, sort of recreational running, like running that feels good or is comfortable is the word I saw in a couple of the papers versus the running where you see these people running and they look like they're being tortured. (laughs) That is correct. Runners are, I mean, as a runner myself, I'm calling myself a different breed, but... (laughs) Some runners just like pain, but I mean, yeah, there's, so referring back to that study in 2017, they were calling elite runners. So runners who compete at an international level, it's, um, you know, their income, it's their career. And those people are often not thinking about long-term joint health. They're focused on performing the best they can for a shorter amount of time. And so if you were to ask me kind of what's the threshold, like how much should you run? How much is safe? We haven't figured that out yet. Uh, humans can tolerate different things. But I think there's the recovery piece in there that if you want to preserve long-term joint health, um, yeah, don't do too much too soon. Adequately recover. Don't push through pain. And so that, to me, feels like, you know, one of the clinical implications of the, the most recent study we're talking about is, is that with some caveats and certainly talking to your healthcare professionals, running is not what's going to damage, you know, the cartilage. It may actually help it. I agree with that statement. And often we tell our runners that stopping running could be even more detrimental, especially in those with knee osteoarthritis. Just there's so many positive effects of running. We don't want people to lose that. Now, my other question is, as someone who was told by my orthopedic surgeon after I had my surgically replaced knees not to run, (laughs) but uh, my wife and I walk quite briskly, sometimes between, you know, 15 and a half and 16 minute miles um, for several miles. Are the benefits 
um, you know, and this may be out of the area of your research, but are the benefits that are seen in running seen, you know, with folks who are walking or briskly walking? A little bit outside of my wheelhouse, um, but I would say movement is medicine. It's always good to move as much as you can. Uh, we don't have a lot of evidence yet to say if running is safe after uh, knee replacement. Um, there's only case studies. We know that people do. Uh, we're not we're not sure what the long term effects are, but if you love it, if it keeps you active, it makes you happy, then by all means, go for it. And I noticed um, there were a few commentaries to the paper. I wasn't able to open them, but I think from the titles of the commentary, it felt like there was a little bit of pushback. I, I don't often ask people to sort of say what their critics <laughs> critics are saying about them, but could you uh, at least give folks that are listening a little flavor of what maybe the pushback was to your paper? Yeah, I was certainly worried when I got that email and saw there had been some pushback, uh, which we always welcome. We always love the constructive criticism. Um, but having read it, I actually really enjoyed what they said. They said, have you considered uh, joints that are injured? And that is actually the topic of my PhD dissertation. Um, so taking people who already have knee osteoarthritis and seeing how their cartilage responds to running and seeing if uh, there is maybe the same protective effect as in healthy people or if arthritic cartilage responds differently. Right. And I think the other thing that maybe clinicians forget is that there's a distinct difference between radiographic osteoarthritis and then sort of symptomatic osteoarthritis. I mean, I knew this from, from clinical practice. I had a knee that didn't even bother me. And then, you know, the radiologist popped the x-ray up a few years ago and goes, you know, you, you have arthritis in three compartments. And I'm like, wow, this wasn't the knee that was bothering me. <laughs> um, so that probably is also important. I think from where you're coming from, you know, in the physical therapy world, function sometimes is more important than what you see on an x-ray. Absolutely. I completely agree. Um, honestly, like we don't call osteoarthritis wear and tear anymore. We typically call it natural aging. And if you're over 40, 50% of you guys will have changes on x-ray that you will have no idea about. Right. I think that the, I remember from my training, it was you do the percentage by the decade. So 50% of people by age 50 will have osteoarthritis on x-ray and so forth. Um, basically, um, living longer than, say, our, our paleo ancestors who you know may have made it to 40 or 50. Exactly. Biggest risk factor for osteoarthritis is being born. <laughs> That's it. And uh, I, I see on your faculty bio that you're also interested in footwear. Now, this this is a huge topic and I've gotten several questions and I have them as well. Um, being of a certain age, I remember when like the first running shoes came out in the mid 70s, like the waffle trainer and all the air cushion and everything. Things seem to sort of go by fads, you know, that there's the barefoot technology and, and things like that. Can you sort of Go over what you've been looking at as far as footwear goes. Yeah, so the footwear research is very discombobulated, <laughs> I would say. It's extremely conflicting. Um, well, my first thing is, is that, you know, does footwear really matter is the first question I have. I think it does. Uh, certainly changing your running shoes can matter. Um, we just find mechanically, we know that um, in more cushioned shoes, you're taking load off your feet potentially. If you run with a more minimal shoe, you're changing that load from the knee and putting it on your foot and Achilles tendon. So I like to think of footwear sometimes as like a brace or a crutch, um, a, temporary, a temporary fix. Um, but there is no best shoe out there to prevent running injuries. 
Right. And I think that the other thing that I noticed when I was sort of looking at some of the research is that some of these, you know, professional runners have totally different shoes for different days. Like they're long days. They have highly padded shoes for race day. They have a totally different shoe. And if they're doing interval training, it's a different shoe there. So it almost sounds like a piece of equipment that, you know, in another sport, you might change several times. Yep. That's exactly what it is. Uh, Running shoes are devices that we can use. Yeah. And um, the other thing I I was going to ask you is, is that so for people who are, you know, road running or trail running, obviously there's a typical shoe for, you know, here in the northern hemisphere, we're headed towards winter. So a lot of people are going to run inside and probably on treadmills. Um, Is there a different type of shoe that they should be using in that or is, again, just comfort? Comfort. Honestly, whatever you've adapted yourself to. So if you're not injured and you're not trying to improve your performance don't change your shoes. (laughs) It's often the transition to something new that gets people injured. Right. And I mean, I think that, you know, we used to do something in osteopathic medicine with leg lengths. Like if somebody came in and they were having a little bit of discomfort, maybe a little plantar fasciitis, if you put a little heel lift in, you didn't even have to put it in the right proper leg. Just simply jumbling things up gives somebody a, a different sense for at least a couple of weeks. Coming back to that adaptation, humans are, man, we're so adaptable. We can respond to things very well. All right. So I am going to ask about the elephant in the room is that barefoot running thing. Yes. <laughs> um, and those shoes, first of all, um, they are just a little freaky oh, yeah. looking, but <laughs> what do you have to say about, what do you have to say about that kind of footwear? So I, uh, yeah, a lot of my master's work was in uh, looking at the foot and ankles. So I am a proponent for sure of barefoot walking. Uh, Our feet are the only part of our body in contact with the ground. So why not use like a bottom-up approach, get those feet strong? I'm not saying everybody has to run in barefoot shoes, although there is evidence that, yeah, you can build up the intrinsic uh, foot musculature and that could be good. Um, but changing to barefoot shoes, again, you're moving that load from somewhere else and placing it in your feet and on your Achilles tendon. So running in bare feet is fine, uh, but just making sure that you transition over slowly, you have a good uh, calf muscle strengthening program. Um, but really, yeah, it's, it's can be totally safe. And so the other question I always ask, and this is more sometimes a clinician, sometimes folks are doing research. Put your forward-looking glasses on, and in 10 years, 15 years, what do you think people are going to have on their feet when they're running, you know, for recreation or competitively? I think it's very different from recreational competitive. Uh, For competitive, I'm looking at different forms of foam and carbon plates and aerodynamic designs and shoes that are as light as air. Um, On the recreational side, I have no idea. (laughs) We go in so many cycles, and it's constantly changing. And some of it seems to be fashion. Absolutely. Right. I, I mean, I did watch a little bit on the uh, Nike Vaporfly and, and sort of the energy return, which fascinated me. And some people are like, hey, is this shoe e- even legal? But that's some serious biomechanics because you're and that's another area that you're really into about sort of gait or yeah, gait retraining or stride retraining. Obviously, sounds from that phrase that there's a wrong way to run and a right way to run. Yeah, again, I think gait retraining can be used as a therapy. So, for example, my work looks at cadence, so the amount of steps you're taking per minute. And we know that increasing your cadence by about 10%, that can reduce ground reaction forces. So the force that the ground is impacting back on your body. And it can also alter some of the forces in your knee joints. 
So if somebody comes to me with knee pain or knee issues, then I might recommend that. Great. Because some of the things that I hear from the cardiovascular side is just like, you know, you want to get 30 minutes, you know, of moderate to, to vigorous exercise. And some people are like, oh, no, I'd like to go for a longer, slower run. So it may actually be better for a lot of parts of your body to be doing things a little more vigorously and maybe for a shorter period of time. Yeah, a little bit outside of my area of expertise, but movement is medicine. Any way you can get out there is better than doing nothing. And so I'm going to I'm going to bring a, a couple of other questions in from from colleagues and, and coworkers who are runners. And you may have answered this one more fully, but there's kind of a debate about how quickly to get back to running if you suspect a knee injury or you have soreness somewhere. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, um, the best thing to do is consult with a healthcare professional, especially physiotherapists. Um, I would say the a walk run program is amazing to get back into it. And I say that because well, 90% of injuries we see in the clinic are from training load errors. So this is not terrain, not shoes, not running form, anything. It's just from going too much too soon. Um, so just listen to your body. If you're waking up with pain the next day, you're having pain during running or right after, you may have pushed too far. Um, so yeah, it always comes back to knowing your limits. Right. I mean, that's obviously, you know, and when you look at, and I, in my practice, I used to see people who are like weekend warriors who'd be like, all of a sudden they just, you know, didn't do anything for five days. And then they went out full blast for two days in the weekend. And then they show up in the emergency room on Sunday night and they're like, I have no idea why my shoulder's killing me. And I'm like, you know, have you played that much tennis in you know, yeah. <laughs> in a weekend before? Um, one other question, and I know you you looked at feet, ankle, knees, and hips. Um, you know, sort of looking at this as the you know sort of axial skeleton. Questions about sacrum injuries. One of my uh, colleagues said that he's noticed with you know runners. You know, people are running 30, 40, maybe 50 miles a week. Sacrum injuries seem to be coming up, at least that he's noticed. Is is there anything in the sort of knee or ankle or the lower extremity that might be causing those things or, or you could even theorize about? Yeah, that's an interesting conversation. And I can say anecdotally, I have had sacroiliac pain when running before. Um, I haven't solved it yet. And as far as or to my knowledge, there's no research out there. Um, the sacroiliac joint we know doesn't move a lot. So yeah, if anybody wants to do another PhD, that's a topic right there. <laughs> there you go. We've just, we've just given someone a, a thesis as we talk about that. So, um, so sort of being respectful of your time and wrapping up here a little bit, there's a couple of just random questions I have. I looked at the records and, and it, nobody's broken the two hour marathon, which seems insane for a fast running. But as someone who follows running, that's got to happen, right? I mean, yeah, nobody's broken it legally. Um, Kipchoge has illegally, if you want to call it. Um, but I was listening to a webinar by the person at Nike who was responsible for the breaking two effort. And he just really hit home that humans have so much potential and are really limitless. So absolutely, it seems so far away 10, 15 years ago, but it'll happen. Yeah, it's amazing. I did have a, a professor um, who was in part of the structural medicine department back in, in my osteopathic medical school who said he firmly believed that there were, you know, some people who were built to run and run quite a distance. And then there are other folks who, you know, weren't. Um, I, 
And I think that, you know, to your point, I think that one of those things is um, if you do it and it's not and it's not working for you, pick something else. Although I do know that weight bearing is, you know, for osteoporosis and all these other and balance and so forth are great exercises. Lastly, um, I did notice on your faculty bio that you captained the varsity squash team. (laughs) I did. Yeah. During my uh, undergrad and my master's at the University of Western Ontario. Very nice. I I have played squash a few times and my only criticism is the ball needs to bounce more i'm sorry that yeah (laughs) especially if you're a tennis player right (laughs) and and i also noticed that one of your um researches was also uh, about achilles tendon rupture which probably with squash is is one of the risks because of the explosive movement i mean i just finished watching a documentary um, you know, even an elite athlete like Kobe Bryant, you know, ruptured his Achilles tendon. And I've seen it numerous times where even these highly trained athletes just with explosive movement, boom, their Achilles tendon blows on them. Yes. Yeah. No, it, it's uh, it's happened to so many. I mean, so many recreational athletes that um, I can think of yet yeah, just 10 elite athletes off the top of my head that it does happen seemingly spontaneously. Yeah. Is it, a, is it a sort of weak link within the lower extremity or something that folks just don't pay as much attention to as other parts of their lower extremity? Yeah, potentially a little bit of both, but it's interesting that we see it in, I mean, the weekend warrior um, population for sure. And that's just um, lack of consistent training. Um, but on the professional side, it's just going above that tolerance of the tissue. Right. I mean, especially these athletes, I I specifically remember one where I was live at an event at a Boston Red Sox game. And there was a player named Gabe Kapler who was came around first and was trying to stretch a single into a double elite athlete. Boom, he falls flat on his face. I knew immediately what happened to him. His Achilles tendon let go when he was pushing off on the on his right leg and just went, boo. Yeah. And it's an interesting thing because uh, you'll often see videos of people looking behind them to see if somebody's kicked them in the back of the leg because that's exactly what it feels like. Amazing. Well, this has been a really great conversation. I think that um, when you publish your PhD thesis, we would love to have you back and discuss that. Oh, thank you. I would I would love to come back. We've had an excellent discussion. And thank you for just the avenue for getting this information out to runners or maybe new runners. And that's today's episode of the Specialist Spotlight. Thank you for joining us. For more stories like these, visit us at pvroundup.com to subscribe to our weekly newsletters. Thoughts, comments, or suggestions? Please leave us a review on your preferred listening platform or email us at editorial at pvroundup.com. Subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, Pandora, Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, or Google. You can also download our Amazon Alexa Flash Briefing, Medical News Roundup, and just ask, what's my flash briefing? Thanks today to our guest, Michaela Kahn, and to Sean Mullen, Norm Dion, and Kate Rio for production assistance. Join me next time for an episode where we cover the latest stories in the world of medicine. <laughs>